your profession has propelled you into and forced you to see the truth, we do not know health. Yeah, we do not know what health is. So I've, I have no qualms about saying that um, because I think whatever we are, whoever we are, we have to own it. And we don't, we know disease quite well in, in many aspects, you know, and that's what we study in medical school for the most part. Anatomy is a kind of health, physiology is a kind of health, and then after that, embryology, histology, but then once we get to pathophysiology, most of the rest of the career is pathophysiology, pathos, what goes wrong. Hi, I'm Dr. Dimple Jangda. I'm your podcast host and I welcome you to A Gut Story. This is a podcast, a platform where we're going to discuss healthy everything. A healthy body, healthy mind, healthy emotion, healthy energetics and a healthy spiritual journey. We're going to also discuss stories of courage, grit, confidence, discipline and patience that helped several people overcome tragic events in their life and physical trauma. And we're also going to learn from several natural sciences like Ayurveda, naturopathy, homeopathy, yoga, on how to reset our body back to good health and bring ourselves back closer to nature. Welcome to A Gut Story with yours truly, Dr. Dimple. In this human library, we're basically engaging in conversations with the masters who've mastered their sciences and who have something to offer to the world. I have with me Dr. Anu. Welcome to the show, Dr. Anu. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Anu. He is an MD. He also has a degree in management and he's a leading voice for health and healthcare transformation, bringing clarity to the full spectrum of clinical medicine, mind-body integration and human potential. He's also the co-founder of Health Revolution, a company building a complete ecosystem for healing, beginning with a four-week program called the Health Jumpstart. Now, he's also got a podcast called Healing is Possible, and he grew up experimenting with the philosophy of non-duality, eventually finding ways to integrate its comprehensive perspective of human nature with biomedical science. Now, this is one of those rare cases where we have a modern medicine practitioner who practices allopathy, who is in the emergency room day in, day out, talking about Vedantic philosophy, talking about spirituality, talking about mental health and emotional health and the holistic aspect of health. So that's really interesting. And this is the reason why we want to engage in a conversation with Dr. Anand. Now, he's also board certified in emergency medicine and he holds a master's degree in management with a focus in health leadership. And he's a frontline emergency physician, a public speaker, a podcast host, and author of two amazing books, Michelangelo's Medicine and Is This a Dream? Let's begin this conversation and first understand what are these two books about? Michelangelo's Medicine and Is This a Dream? What are these books about? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Michelangelo's Medicine was my way of figuring out how to communicate a part of my experience to those people interested in healthcare. So including my colleagues in emergency medicine. And by the way, let me start by saying I got back from work a few hours ago. I saw heart attacks. I saw strokes. I saw infections. I saw trauma. So I think what you said at the beginning is really important, Dr. Dimple, which is that this is, it is emergency medicine. It's what we call modern medicine. And it is all entirely compatible with everything we're going to talk today. So we'll get there when we get there. Um, but I wanted to talk about my experience to my colleagues, you know, to patients, 
to people who didn't understand all the stuff about whether it's Vedanta or human potential or transformation or anything like that. And so I had to figure out that language because in my experience it was there, but how do you put it in English, right? So this was a process of talking through cases, patient cases that I saw, integrating some of the philosophy that I learned and reconciling that with my own experience and telling a story about how this this young doctor, Anukumar, kind of came along and started to see things differently. That's Michelangelo's medicine. The second book, Is This a Dream, was written because I felt the first one wasn't quite enough and didn't say enough. Um, and by that time, I had started to talk to people about human nature, human potential, transformation much more, as well as the nature of the world. And again, I wanted a language for that also. And I wanted a place where the questions I was getting most frequently, I could elaborate and just put down somewhere so that as a reference. So that's the genesis of Is This a Dream? And if I remember correctly, there are three parts in the book. Part one is called You Are Not Who You Think You Are. Part two is called The World Is Not What You Think It Is. And part three is called The Many Faces of Non-Duality, something like that. But basically, it's an entire reorientation to life. So these, this is the two books. This is amazing. And your life itself is in such polarities. You were in the emergency room a few hours ago, watching people's body being cut open for trauma, emergency surgeries, watching people battle with life and death, right? Now in yeah. Kashi, in Varanasi in India, which is a spiritual place, I yeah. was there a few months ago and I watched the entire cycle of human life play out on the same banks of the river. So people were celebrating birth by shaving the head of a newborn. People were also yeah. celebrating marriages, the union of coming together of two souls who will together now have progeny and bring further souls into this world. And I also saw people coming there to die. So there was an old age home yeah. where people come there to die gracefully yeah. in the arms yeah. of God. Yeah. And then I also see people attending the funeral rite or at the pyre burning the dead bodies of those who've departed all on the banks of the same river so i saw life and death play out quickly in just a matter of 100 meters or 60 seconds of my visual spectrum yeah and that's exactly yeah. what's happening to you day in day out at the emergency room you're watching life play out and there are so many life yeah. lessons you've been gathering from all of these emergency cases which is probably what yeah. inspired you towards holistic wellness and understanding how to prevent disease rather than waiting to get yeah. sick. So what has your Absolutely. approach been towards holistic wellness? What are the tools you use? Well, you know, I won't go so far as to say that the ER is Kashi, but uh, I, less than 12 hours ago, in the last few hours, we had um, somebody who had just delivered and was celebrating life. And unfortunately, we saw the other end of the spectrum too. Um, and so there are some uncanny similarities you know, in terms of seeing the spectrum of life, seeing the, seeing the spectrum of birth and death, the spectrum of age, from, from age zero practically to over a hundred years old. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, what happened was the health and the big picture of things came first. That came when I was probably around, started when I was probably around six or seven years old because my family was very much into Advaita Vedanta and that was my primary education. Um, and school kind of paled in comparison because I felt like it didn't have the real, the weight or the depth 
that I was hearing just, I was just sitting in the adult classes because there were no kid classes at that time. So I was hearing these, these amazing probings of human nature and reality. Um, and then so school became contextualized within that. You know, the other was my primary education. School came secondary. Um, so when you have that perspective and then you end up going to medical school, you start to realize, I'll tell you a story, you know, after medical school, actually, when I was in my training in emergency medicine, there was a very busy night in which um, so many sick people were coming in. There were a bunch of gunshot wounds coming in. And I remember I thought it couldn't get any worse. It was like we were in a hurricane. It was literally like being in a hurricane. It was my first year in training. And just when you thought it couldn't get worse, a nurse ran in with a newborn baby who wasn't breathing. And it, you know, everything just spun that much faster. And then you can imagine the scene, everybody's running around, the nurses are coming, you know, you're trying to maintain this baby's airway, um, trying to make sure the heartbeat is going, getting the medications you need, you're doing all the stuff. And then in the middle of that cacophony, I remember everything went silent. It was like I flipped into the eye of the hurricane where everything was absolutely still and everything was whirling around it. And I remember this thought ringing like a bell in my mind, which was that we don't know what health is, right? It just crystallized. And I felt like I was sitting down on the floor of the trauma bay with blood all around me, with craziness happening all around me. But in that where I was, it was absolutely still. And so I'm saying that because when I got into healthcare and medical school and emergency medicine training, I saw the the contradiction or at least the contrast between what I was learning and what I was experiencing, experimenting with personally and the kind of formal objective knowledge. And so that's what started the process of reconciliation. And through that and through my own change, I'm getting to your answer, I promise, through kind of significant changes that were happening in my own life, um, in the way I perceived, in the, in the way I sensed what I was or who I was, I figured how do I say this to people in healthcare? You know, as I told you about Michelangelo's medicine, like I can't not say this because I would, I would feel much more than incomplete. I would just feel devastated if I could not share this in some way. So to get to your answer, my practice is something that I call the four engines, which is very simply nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. And we can get into details, but the, the point is that no matter what tradition you go to in any culture at any time, these four will be emphasized because these are the fundamentals of human sustenance and human growth. And when a person activates and revs these four engines, which is what we talk about at Health Revolution, changes happen in the human system. Some kind of transformation happens depending on the quality and let's say intensity of attention to these engines. And then we move into another phase, which I call mind-body flow theory, which is where we start to see that what we used to call mind, what used to be called body, what used to be called energy, all of these things are one flow of amazing experience. And then this cycles, the four engines activate mind-body flow theory, which inspires and says, I want more of this. And it's more of the four engines and this kind of cycle happens. So that's my practice because that's what gave me stability. That's what gave me the words. That's what gives me the inspiration to communicate with people about this. That's amazing. You know, that visual, if I might say, has literally imprinted in my head that you were sitting there in the emergency room surrounded yeah. by blood. Yeah. 
and you found a moment of stillness in that hurricane. That yeah. I think is the epitome of the human mind or you know the the potential of meditation even yeah. in the most scariest moments of our life. They say that yeah. the scariest and the most stressful moments of your life calls for the calmest version of you so you can yeah. find your way, navigate out of that hurricane, out of that quicksand, out of that you know near to death experience. It's amazing yeah. what your profession has propelled you into and forced you to see the truth we do not know health. Yeah, we do not know what health is. So I've, I have no qualms about saying that um, because I think whatever we are, whoever we are, we have to own it. And we don't. We know disease quite well in in many aspects. You know, that's what we study in medical school for the most part. Anatomy is a kind of health. Physiology is a kind of health. And then after that, embryology, histology. But then once we get to pathophysiology, most of the rest of the career is pathophysiology, pathos, what goes wrong. Right? It's not just physiology. So the other end of pathophysiology would be human potential. Right? Physiology is how the body works. Human potential is how the body works in increasingly potentialized ways. And that's not a subject in medical school. And you know what? That's okay. Because not all professions, not all fields have to do every aspect of it. We just have to know what aspect that we're working on. However, what has happened is that with modern medicine and allopathy, what we've begun to understood the world over now, it's not just in the United States or West, it's in India too, I've seen it, is that we, we start to believe that this is the truth, or this is the way, or this is primary medicine. And I'm the first one to say we have it backwards. Modern medicine, what I practice, is complementary medicine. It's the true complementary medicine. And I own that and I love that and I accept that because that puts what I do in context in the emergency room. And that's how people should see that. Nutrition, movement, connection and rest are primary medicine. Because if you don't have those, you don't have human life. You don't have human sustenance. You don't have human growth. If you don't have pills and surgery, you can still love a good life. So naturally, that's complementary medicine, you know. So I think we have to see that. And to me, that beautifies emergency medicine and allopathy because you see what it can truly do, where it's meant to go, how you're supposed to use it, and everything else, including Ayurveda and yoga and Chinese medicine and the indigenous medicine and the four engines and mind-body flow theory. This is true primary medicine as long as it is focusing on these aspects of nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. And you know what? They all do because they're all tuned in to fundamental human sustenance. I love how you've explained so many parallel thoughts in one answer. It's amazing because we've understood disease, we've not understood health. And the problem lies in the fact that in the last 100 to 300 years, we've invested all our time, energy and money to investigate disease, to understand disease. And all our energy and time and money has also gone towards diseases and insurance rather than health and preventive wellness. And this has also been like a byproduct of many things that has happened in the last few years, especially the wars, the battles that was fought, the colonial rule that shut down all Ayurvedic schools and colleges in India, all traditional medicines in Australia, the Native American science, you know, that they used to practice. All of these natural yeah. sciences were suppressed. The voices were shut down and they were made alternative science when they were actually yes. the primary healthcare provider. They were healthcare right. provider, not right. disease right. care. 
organizations. Yeah. They were healthcare providers. Absolutely. They used to provide health so that you can live a more healthy and a more powerful now. Now this science became an alternative science and modern medicine and allopathy was portrayed or projected as the primary healthcare provider. But they're not healthcare providers, they're disease care providers or rather people who attend to a situation which has gone out of control. Modern medicine yeah. is necessary for an acute condition like a heart attack, a fracture, an accident. But it's not something that you live on and wake up to every day. You wake up right. to the four engines rather, which is nutrition, right. movement, connection, and sleep and or rest as you yeah. call it. Yeah. Let's elaborate yeah. more on what we should be waking up to instead. What is nutrition, yes. movement, connection, which is a beautiful word, yes. and rest yes. all about? Yes. So nutrition, so nutrition, movement, and connection, rest, we talk about these across the human system. So just as, for example, Ayurveda doesn't necessarily distinguish between the body is here and the mind is here, right? Ayurveda takes a tridosha approach, which makes up the body, makes up the mind, it makes up your environment, right? The anatomic model is fundamentally deeper. So similarly with the four engines, it's not just body or mind. We go across the human system. So for nutrition, number one is nutrition of the mind in the sense of what are the stories you are listening to? Right? What are the stories you're taking in? What is nourishing your mind? What is the library of your thought? Right? What is the field of your vision? Because if we're taking in stories that say, this is what you are, and I believe that story, then that is my potential. Right? Because I simply won't look for anything outside that, or I won't think anything else is possible, which is why we call our podcast Healing is Possible, because we interview people who are healing from things you're not supposed to heal from if you read the books. Right? So what stories are we consuming is nutrition. Also, nutrition of the body. So we say that, number one, I think almost any culture in the world, including all the diet arguments I hear in the US, almost everybody will agree to cut out processed foods. That's the step one of any nutrition, right? Before, some people will say, oh, no meat at all. Some people will say, you know, you can have some meat. Some people will say this, that. But nobody says, yes, eat processed foods. Right? Because even arch enemies will come together on that. Because processed food, depending on how processed it is, in an, it, it's kind of alternative food in a sense. Right? So whole foods is number one. Number two, we say a plant-based diet at least significantly increased fruits and vegetables, especially fresh fruits and vegetables, if the person's digestive system can handle that. Otherwise, steamed or cooked is fine also. So these are, in, in my view, Nutrition is not complex. Of course, it can be tailored for every person, it can be refined, and it should be to some extent. But if the world did this, half the diseases would go away. Cut out processed foods and eating much more fresh plant-based foods, right? So this is the beginning of nutrition. Movement is moving the body, of course. We don't say exercise because not everybody wants to exercise, not everybody likes exercise. And frankly, there are some people, I know it's anathema, but there are some people who live to 100 and they're not exercising a lot either, right? So it's about movement. So that includes the range of motion, moving our bodies through our full range of motion. It includes moving the breath. The breath is, if there were one thing that was possibly the most potent force that is free on earth, it might be your breath. Yeah. Because it is literally the connecting force between what we call the mind and what we call the body. In the ER, if you see somebody breathing shallow and fast, you can bet they're anxious. If you see somebody breathing deep and full, which is rare, you can bet that they're probably calm and you would win your bets 80 plus percent of the time if you bet like that. 
In fact, that's one of my strategies when I go into a room is I can see who's breathing how, right? And I make sure that my breath is breathing in such a way that the other person is coming to me and I'm not going to them. In any situation, when you have two people, one is going to come close to the other. They're going to come close, but the person who's aware of it and knows what the mechanics are will be able to maintain their anchor, right? So does the doctor get closer to disease or does the patient get closer to health? That's the question, right? So moving the breath is key. Third, moving our creativity. What do you love to do, right? I, I see so many people who've never been asked this or thought about this. Like, what do you love to do, right? I love doing this. You can probably see it. I love doing this. I love communicating about human potential, right? I love communicating about what healthcare can be, right? So among other things, that's, that's one of the things I do. It doesn't have to be a profession. You don't have to get paid for it. But in your own time, somewhere in your home or in your day, you have to express that. You must express that because that is your gift regardless of anything else. And when you express it, you will see people will start to listen, right? So moving your creativity. Number four is moving your feelings and your emotions, which I have seen heal more diseases than I can say. A person doesn't change their food, doesn't change anything else, but does, for example, hypnosis and discovers that, oh, I felt like this when I felt like this, my parents responded this way and then this pattern kind of happened and that person had Crohn's disease and had bowel surgery, multiple bowel obstructions, one session of hypnosis, all symptoms disappeared for years. Years now, they're symptom-free, repeat colonoscopy is normal. That's just one example. I've seen this over and over and over. So-called incurable diseases with just moving the emotions, right? Which we don't even know how to do. So movement of all of these, movement of the body, the range of motion, movement of our creativity, movement of the breath, and movement of our emotions. Connection this feeling right here, connection, right? So one is connecting with others. One of the things that happens in what we call spirituality, and we'll get into that. If you remind me, we'll get into that. But what we call spirituality, what happens is that it's, it's a lot of inward movement, right? Moving to the depths. But in that process, a person can become cocooned. I've experienced that too. And you can kind of lose contact in a sense with the apparently external world. And so I make sure to say that connection with others is important. It's a way of kind of calibrating, right? It's, it's a way of having a balance of powers, so to speak. And so uh, being able to connect with others, share your story, right? Share the things that are going well, share the things that are not going well. That kind of connection is important. Connection with the planet. Oh my God, connection with the planet is probably one of the most just left out, overlooked, easy to do things that has tremendous power. I feel like a person gets 50% smarter by connecting with the planet. It doesn't, has nothing to do with education, formal education. What do I mean? I mean feet in the soil, bare feet in the soil, electron transfer between your body and the earth. I love going to the beach and putting my feet in the ocean. I mean, it's like plugging into an electrical socket, right? So sun on the skin, sun in the eyes, right? I'm not saying staring at the sun, but sunlight, getting that sunlight, right? Um, what else? Fresh air in the lungs. And of course, the other ones, what I say is eyes on the sky. You must look at the sky. You must. To come, to be on earth and not look at the sky is a tragedy. So please, even if you're in the city, get outside and look at the sky because there is only one thing on this planet 
that you can look up and see only one thing of, and that is the sky. If you look up, you are seeing the same sky I'm seeing in the United States. You're seeing the same sky somebody's seeing in China. It is one sky. There may be different clouds, but it's one sky. And there is a, this is a technology actually. There's an effect on the human system when all it recognizes is unity. If you look at ground level, you will see multiplicity. You will see laptops and screens and bodies and shapes and colors and forms. And you will have that experience of multiplicity. If you look at the sky for a while, your mind will change because there is a technology involved in that process. So feet in the soil, sun on the skin, fresh air in the lungs, eyes on the sky. That is, that is the planetary aspect of connection. And the third part of connection is connecting with oneself, right? Who am I? What am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? Who is coming with me? Who came with me? What is this planet? Is it different from me? These are not conceptual questions. These are not intellectual questions. And they certainly don't have intellectual answers. But the answers flood you with a new experience of living. So this is connection with oneself. So nutrition, movement, connection, the fourth engine is rest. And we specifically say, I don't say sleep, not because sleep is not important. Again, deep sleep is such a healing experience, right? But why is it a healing experience? Of course, the body is tremendously active during sleep. There's lots, there's lots of repair happening, DNA repair, wound repair, tons of healing that's happening. The active thinking conceptual mind just gets out of the way and shuts down. So the body's just like, all right, I'm going, I'm going full scale now, right? So, but it's important to recognize that sleep is a kind of rest, right? Rest is not a kind of sleep. So the bigger category is actually rest. What we're doing is resting. Sleep is a particular kind of rest in which the body is generally not moving, the gross body is generally not moving, and the mind is generally not thinking, right? So that's, now what we can do is replicate that to some extent, even in the waking state of experience. And that's the key to rest. It's knowing that yes, sleep is key, but then building through activating and revving the other three engines, building that awareness of what rest really means and being able to go through one's day in a restful way, such that even when one is awake, if you wish, you can set the mind aside saying, I don't need it right now, right? So rest becomes a restful way to live rather than just sleep time. So these are the four engines, nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. How beautiful is that? You literally summed up everything that we must know about our human body, right from nutrition. You need to know what's going in your mouth. You need to know what's on your plate. You become what you eat. You become what you think. You become the books you read, the thoughts you keep, the friends you have, and the kind of content you consume on social media or in person, which is why connecting with nature is better because you're consuming clean content you're looking at the sky, you're feeling the sand on your feet, you're feeling the ocean and those waves on your feet, you're feeling the sun on your skin. You're consuming information when you're exposing yourself to the elements. And this is where I think Ayurveda really helps me connect with who I am, what am I, where did I come from, and where am I going? Because it talks about us being born in the purest state of the five elements earth, water, fire, air, and space. And when these five elements come together, we're in a state of health. But even if one element goes out of balance, if you've not had exposure to sun for days together, you will have diseases connected to the lack of sun. 
if you've not been grounding yourself you'll have diseases connected to the gross body if you've not had enough clean air you will have diseases connected to your bronchial health if you've not had enough space which is rest not sleep if you've not had enough space in your mental emotional physical health you will have diseases connected to your mind psychosomatic diseases then is the origin of all other physical diseases that we have in the body if you could just understand the potential of the human mind the human emotion and how it manifests itself in the form of health or disease at a physical level we are right now experiencing only the physicality but when we start going deeper we start experiencing the origin of it and the connection that you spoke about with the planet with the universe also loves you to connect with the akashic records which does not require you to have any education or pre qualifications to be able to access yeah. or to be able to yeah. read from like you know before we got onto this podcast i actually spent 20 minutes in bed meditating clearing space in my mind an empty canvas but god can play his miracles an empty canvas where i can create new ideas new energy an empty canvas where i can become the co-creator of this universe because if you're looking for god outside then you're doing a mistake he's right within you and if you're looking for health outside if you're looking for answers outside again you're doing a mistake it's within you you need to fix your body at home in your kitchen through conversations with masters like dr anup kumar this has been fantastic how you've actually captured your two books in one big answer and anyone who's curious can actually dig in deeper and learn more from your experiences now i want to know i'm going to stretch this conversation a little longer because this is getting fun and there's so much to learn from you what are your favorite tools that you use starting from the moment you wake up starting from the moment you open your eyes or you don't even open your eyes and you start engaging in these tools what are the tools that you absolutely fall back on now this is information from a first inline physician for an emergency room who sees life and death on a daily basis what are the tools that you fall back on for mental health emotional health and physical health starting from the time you wake up so i will tell you the major one the biggest one by far uh, and that is staying connected and aware of what i am beyond the body and beyond the mind uh that is that's number 1 by a long distance and there's no close number 2 um because i guess that's been my kind of exploration since i was a kid uh and that's something that i feel is always there I mean you can be at you can be on Mars or you can be at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean where some other things may not be there. You know, you might not be able to take a full breath for example, but this is there. Um and so for me that's number 1 that's before I open my eyes, that's after I close my eyes. That's why my eyes that's what I'm doing now as my eyes are open. Um that is the spark of life. that is everywhere with everyone and constitutes what we call the material world. So that's number 1. Um the what I call the four engines uh, and the things that I describe to you are things that I do. I don't do all of them every day, but that came not because I sat down and said um you know, how do I figure this out or how do I create a framework, but in in medical school um I had an experience that really 
changed the way I saw everything. Um, and I, I would say it was a near-death-like experience and I had the chance to leave the body. Um, but came back and when I came back, everything looked different, everything felt different, and we can say that a detour had been taken or maybe I got off the detour onto the main course, one of the two. However, after that, soon after that, I got married and I started my training in emergency medicine and it was extremely difficult because I was just perceiving the world very differently in myself than I had for the preceding 20-something years. You know, so it was like being a baby and having to learn to walk again. But imagine you're a doctor and people are expecting you to be holding that knowledge that you were given you know, in medical school and, and of course starting from elementary school, it's the same kind of thinking that, that one is given. And to uphold that as the kind of the bastion of knowledge, you know? And so that was very difficult. So I had to figure out how to reconcile this. And I didn't want to let either one go. That's important. I could have let one or the other, well, I couldn't have let the, the new aspect go. I could have probably let the old aspect go, but I didn't want to. I felt like there was meaning in it and there was something to be said about it. So it was through my own stumbling and trial and error that these four engines came about. I didn't call them four engines. I was just doing these things. And I was like, no, no, wait, this is missing. I got to do this. Then I said, no, this is missing. I got to do this. And I could feel, it's almost like a speedometer, speedometer on a car. You know, I could feel, oh no, it's something no, back here or like a compass. And eventually what brought that thing to like a steady rocket ship was these four aspects. So I do these things. I minimize processed foods. I eat fresh fruits and vegetables. I get, when it's not freezing outside, I get outside and I am barefoot outside. Um, you know, if, if there's nobody around and I can be, I'll, I'll take off my shirt. I'll even take off my pants sometimes when nobody's around because I just love the dirt on me. You know, like I would be probably considered crazy by people, but I don't care. It feels amazing to me, you know? Um, uh, uh, writing, journaling I did for a lot to process my own emotions. Um, that was a big thing for me to go into my own emotions and release through sobbing and crying, like a lot of the pent up emotions that I had. Um, and then rest, especially rest and connection are, are very closely connected. If one is connected, you are resting, right? And if you're truly resting, you will move into connection. Uh, so this is everything I've told you is stuff that I do I don't do everything 100%, but it's always a combination of that. But number one, without fail, every day, all day, is staying aware of what I am, because that is the anchor for this lifetime. That's beautiful. That's amazing how you constantly like, you know, remind yourself to stay connected, to stay grounded, to stay connected or plugged back into your source energy, which is mother nature. We come from yeah. nature, and when the time yeah. comes, we disintegrate back into the five elements, earth, water, fire, air, space. We take nothing with us. We bring nothing with us. And when time comes, all that we're going to remember is experiences that has allowed us to evolve into a better, a healthier, and a kinder version of ourselves. So in a context, we're all just going home. We're all just finding a way back home to our soul's energy, right? And most of human experience, however, unfortunately, is spent in a rat race. We are busy fighting and providing for ourselves in the materialistic world and there's never going to be enough. We're so busy in this rat race, be it the corporate world or the medical world or the healthcare world, we're so ambitious wanting to do more, do more, do more, that most of our energy is spent 
on things that is going to matter only on this planet. Right? So it's survival. Literally, we're on a survival mode. We're just making money, spending money, living life on the weekends or on expensive vacations once a year. And the rest of the week, we're dying. We're slowly dying because we're not connected. We're not moving. We're not nourishing our body, mind and soul with food and conversations that matter. And we're not resting, which like you said, is not sleep, but just resting that pause that comes before movement. So yeah, that's really absolutely. beautiful. Tell me a little bit about your trist with Carnatic music and Vedantic philosophy. You were born and brought up, raised in US. And I feel like the world is now going in circles. Yeah. The Western world is now moving towards Eastern philosophies, while the Eastern yeah. world has been constantly looking towards the West for answers. So the world yeah. goes in circles and we're now going yeah. back to our roots. Yeah. And for you to be born and brought up in the US but to suddenly embrace the traditional aspects of Indian culture, tradition and heritage which many of us in India don't care for because yeah. it's in our backyard. Yeah. So what drove yeah. you towards this and what have your learnings been and how has it contributed to your well-being? So yes, I was born in Washington DC and then within within a year or two I think we moved back to India actually. So my first memories are from Kerala in the in the village, you know, like um, coconuts eating fresh coconuts and mangoes and papaya and, and jackfruit and running around, you know, bare feet in the soil. I still remember that. Um, I remember uh, the rain was a, a nice thing. It was a like warm rain. You would still go outside when it's warm rain. You know, here it rains many times. It's cold. And so everybody's kind of huddled inside. But there it's like rain is like it's rich you know so that was that was a lot of my experience i mean for my grandmother it was very difficult i'm not saying it was easy but for for me that was my initial experience and then when we moved back to again back again to dc to maryland just outside dc i noticed that things were different i didn't have the vocabulary to say what it was you know but i was like it seemed like people were in boxes more you know and so I think that began the process of inquisitiveness and I think I also missed India a lot. I don't think I knew it like consciously in my mind, but I think from a feeling perspective I felt that. I felt that the connection wasn't the same, you know. You always had your shoes on. I mean, you were inside, we didn't have our shoes on, but outside you always had your shoes on and I didn't have that. You know, at the most I had flip-flop chappals on, you know, when I was in India when I was outside. So, um I felt that and I think so And I think for my parents too they felt that disconnection and I think that's why they gravitated towards Advaita Vedanta and getting super into it to the point that we were there at the Chinmaya mission like all the time and you know we helped uh, set up a lot of the things in the Washington Center and I was sitting in on the adult Upanishad classes and the Gita classes and I just found and then I remember when Swami Chinmayan ji came he would speak and i just felt like you know when you, when you're a child you know if an adult knows what they're talking about or not and it does not matter whether they have degrees it doesn't matter how they're dressed none of it matters because your mind is clear as a child and you know this is either truth from experience or this is kind of you know somebody's parroting somebody else or parroting a book or something like that and unfortunately a lot of education i think is parroted education But here was a person and people in general a few people who were speaking with the thunder of experience you know 
they were speaking from a place of lightning that you could feel, that any child can feel. You know, even adults feel that, which is why they gravitate towards people who speak like that, right? And so I felt that as a child, and that also started to address the lack that I felt, the, the disconnection that I felt, and I started to develop a framework for why that is, how that is, and then I started to play an experiment with that. I see Vedanta as very much an experimental philosophy. You know, it's like nowadays people experiment with mushrooms and psychedelics and all that. Fine, everybody has their own way, but please know your mind is tremendously powerful. Any experience that you can you can kind of create from the outside, in my experience, you can create tremendous things from the inside. Now, there's nothing I've heard from the outside that outdoes something I've experienced from the inside. So let me just put it that way. And I've seen a lot of stuff in the ER and talked to a lot of people in what we call spirituality and, and all of these fields. So at that point, when I started to see that there is something tremendous here that is not talked about in society, that's when I said, okay, this is, this is really what it's about. And I started experimenting with that. And so at some point when I kind of got that adult mind, you know, as you get into high school and you start to become that adult age, I started to see that in a way, this is what everybody wants. And, and I almost said, I was like, could this be true? You know, is it everybody? I mean, I always sensed that I always had this restlessness, like there's something like I, I want something like I always knew this isn't it, this isn't it, this isn't it. No matter what I learned, whatever what I got, whatever I got, there was always this, no, 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 almost like sifting and searching. What is it actually that I want, you know? And at some point I started to realize, oh, this is what all adults are actually looking for, you know? And then when I started to collaborate with people who are leading figures in the world, um, who are talking with some of the top scientists and things like that, it, it cemented it for sure. I was like, all these guys are trying to arrive at this through their own methods, you know, and, yeah. and they're infinite paths to get there. Um, and so that's when that's when I said, wow, this is this is something so powerful. So that, that's the journey of kind of Vedanta and ultimately how uh, that turned into what I call the three minds framework, which we can talk about some other conversation. It's too long, but that became like a framework for me to kind of communicate some of this. Now, music came along, Carnatic music came along at a very critical juncture, actually, that was um, in eighth grade or so. So I was just about 15 years old, I believe. Um, I had always loved music, so I would sing um, Malayalam as my mother tongue. So I would sing like Malayalam songs because my parents would be listening to them, but just untrained, just singing for fun. And then there was a singer in India called Yeshadas. Right? And Yeshudas is a, I guess he was a playback singer in South India, he was really big and he also sang Carnatic music. So they would, my parents would play that and I would say, this sounds kind of cool. I was playing the violin at the time and I would fool around on the keyboard. I kind of, I kind of just enjoyed music informally. And then so I would just sing with his tapes and sing some of it. And then at some point he came to DC to perform. I ended up meeting him. We sang in his hotel room together and he was like, oh yes, you should learn. And so I said, okay, I'll find a teacher. I, there was a teacher like 15 minutes from where I lived who was come from, comes from an illustrious Carnatic music family in India. And uh, that was it. And I started singing Carnatic music. And the reason I say it was key is because that just opened up a new dimension of energy. As a child growing up, I had done a lot of chanting, you know, Vedic chanting and Sanskrit and learning a lot of those things. And that opens up a certain dimension of experience. Um, and that had brought things to a certain stage. 
And then that Carnatic music and the different ragas and things like that really opened that up to a new level. And even today, I don't sing as much, but when I do, it's again, all of this is technology. It is the most powerful technology on the planet, along with the breath, like I said. Of course, music and singing utilizes the breath, not coincidentally. And you have to know how to utilize that to bring out certain sounds and tones. So that energetic shift combined with the experimenting that I was doing and the conceptual framework and understanding I was developing, all that kind of created a combustion that led to kind of a change in experience that I could no longer ignore and had to communicate through the language of my training. That's amazing. It's amazing actually how you said most of the masters that you spoke to, masters from the field, were trying to arrive at this through their methods. And we spend an entire lifetime, our entire human experience, which by the way is limited, 80, 90, 100 years, trying to arrive at the destination when the tools and the destination has already been given in these Vedantic scriptures. Now, these scriptures are literally what I call the life jacket that allows you to navigate this ocean of human experiences without drowning, without giving up, without feeling lost. Because this ocean of human experiences is vast. The amount of things that you can learn from this world is vast. There's no end to education of the mind, but the education of the spirit is something that we need to explore and spend more energy on. And this is what I also have been observing, you know. We spend many hours a day trying to accomplish things in the real world. But if we spend even one hour or two hours in the morning connecting with ourselves, investing in our spirituality or our mental energy and vibrations, then the rest of the day just plays itself. You don't have to do anything to accomplish anything in the physical world because then it becomes a manifestation of what you already accomplished in the mental and the spiritual realms of yourself in the morning hours. It's called yes. moving the invisible obstacles from your path so things just flow naturally and easily into your life. You don't have to even lift a finger to make things happen in your life. And that's what many masters are trying to figure out. The true human potential. And they're trying to arrive at Absolutely. it through their methods. So there are many artists, there are many musicians who've been trying to do this, right? And why the word Michelangelo, by the way? So the title came to me when I was in Italy. I was there for a conference in Florence and I saw the statue of David. And when I saw the statue of David, I said, you know, whoever envisioned this sculpture, whoever created the sculpture, was seeing a certain depth of human experience, for sure. They were not creating a physical sculpture. They were creating a being. And that being represents itself through that physicality. But you can see it in the brow of David. You can see it in the gaze of David. You can see it in the, in the posture. You know, kind of loose posture, but yet kind of a, um, a confident, in some sense, posture. You can see it in the details, the veins on the hands. So when I saw this, I said, you know, this Michael and Michelangelo is associated and David is considered a masterpiece, right? Michelangelo only paints masterpieces or creates masterpieces. He was, he was that amazing, right? So I said, the human being is a masterpiece, you know, and masters like Michelangelo, they see the full human being. And that's why we gravitate towards their work. Right? Because they are representing something much more than physical. And I said, that's how we have to see people in healthcare. 
we have to see that our model of anatomy is grossly incomplete. You know, that we are not just physical things and, and a few balls of atoms put together. There's much more that constitutes even those atoms to begin with, right? So I said the human being is a masterpiece. Here's David in front of me. Now, if Michelangelo, who created this David with this depth of vision, were to envision medicine, what would that be? That's Michelangelo's medicine. It's amazing how art keeps playing in humanity. We need to preserve art because it speaks volumes to our character, it speaks volumes to our personality, to our soul, which somehow education may not be able to touch. Education is for the mind again, education is for survival, education is for navigating this world. But this education of the senses, education of your spirit is something so fine that you cannot capture it in words, you have to experience it. And that's what you experienced in Italy while you were standing there in front of David's statue. And that spoke through your book, Michelangelo's Medicine, and your other book, which is, the second book is called? Is This a Dream? Is This a Dream? Why that? So because I think at some point, at, with a certain kind of experience or a certain, let's say, kind of perception, the center, the role of the character that we are changes, you know, um, and the way that the mind perceives the states of experience. So we can say there's a dream state of experience. We can say there's a waking state, which is what we call this state is a waking state of experience. There's a sleep state of experience. And at some point, the way that the mind or consciousness or awareness or whatever it is detects these states changes such that what was previously thought to be the dominant state, which is the waking state, and what are thought to be subsets of that, like sleep is a part of the waking state, and then dream is a part of that, and then we come back to the waking state, which is the dominant state. But at some point that shifts, and what is seen is that that dream state itself is a experience that is on par with or like the waking state. And the state of sleep itself is not actually an absence of anything, but it's actually just the mind going to sleep. But what a person fundamentally is doesn't sleep and doesn't wake up. It exists, you know, just as the sun. And we can say at night, Earth sleeps, or at least wherever we are in the world, in the United States, it sleeps at 9 p.m., right? Meaning that what? It's dark. But the sun is not sleeping. The sun is always there. It is from a certain perspective with a limited vision within a particular geographic range, sleep occurs, right? So when we see that, then that mind begins to question, wait a second, if what I am is always awake, so to speak, or at least never really asleep, and if it's the mind that's going to sleep at certain times, then how much difference is there between waking and dream? So to explore all of these questions, to write them clearly and also to not have to answer them over and over the same ones, but to kind of get to subtler questions, I decided to explore that. And that's where this title came from, Is This a Dream? How beautifully said, you know, this, this is interesting how we've created our own reality to be able to survive, right? We've created our reality that the sun rises, the sun sets, there is day, there is night, there is wakefulness, there is sleep, there is male, there is female, there is birth, there is death. But in reality, the sun neither rises nor sets. There is neither day nor night. The earth is just circumnavigating the sun and goes through darkness and light. 
The spirit has no gender. It is neither male nor female. The spirit is neither born nor does it die. You're neither wakeful nor are you asleep. You are in a state of being, a state of pure existence, a culmination of the five elements. But we've created this artificial reality around us, which is called Maya in Vedantic philosophy and many other cultures and uh, scriptures. We've created this artificial reality to be able to connect, to be able to survive. We've actually created a clock as well, a watch that tells us what time of the day and night it is. But time by itself is a parallel and it doesn't exist. It's neither born nor does it die. It's neither starts nor does it finish. Every moment is forever. So it's, it's really interesting how we've actually started with emergency room conversations and we've started diving so deep into the spirituality and the mental and the emotional aspects of the human mind. And I'm really amazed at the kind of conversations we were able to pull together in this 50-minute conversation, which is going to be part of the human library, where in conversations with the master, students can learn and at least find answers to the questions that have been keeping them awake, find new avenues to explore. We're all constantly figuring things. We're all constantly trying to figure our way back home. And I hope this conversation inspires the students to find their way back home their way back to spirituality, their way back to their creator, their soul's energy, mother nature or universe or the Big Bang Theory, whatever they want to believe in. I hope this helps them find their way back home. Thank you so much, Dr. Anu, for this stimulating conversation, if I might say, at a physical, mental, emotional, intellectual, spiritual level, which has been very interesting. We spoke about health at all levels, body, mind and emotion. So I really thank you for your time and your expertise and for bringing all that knowledge and wisdom that you have in this one shot conversation. This is just the beginning. I'm sure there are many more conversations that we can have with you to explore the deep aspects of health. Thank you so much, Dr. Anu. Hey guys, if you like this episode, don't forget to leave a comment below so we can learn how to improve ourselves. Like, subscribe and definitely share this with your loved ones, your friends, family and relatives so you can become an influence of good health in their lives. Until my next episode, here's wishing you unconditional happiness, love, forgiveness, kindness, empathy, compassion in everything that you do. Here's Dr. Dimple Jagra signing off.